0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show about creating the future with master innovator and major role model Beth Comstock. Whether we're trying to ignite our individual work, move our organizations forward, or create a better collective future, we're often stymied by our inability to conceive of what's possible, never mind turn those dreams into something real, especially when we're trying to solve seemingly intractable problems. Today's guest has done all that and more. Beth Comstock began her career in marketing and rose to become the first woman vice chair at General Electric, helping one of the world's largest and oldest companies envision and create the future. Along the way, she helped to found Hulu, initiated GE's digital and clean energy transformation, and taught countless colleagues and CEOs to, as she puts it, imagine it forward. Thankfully, she's translated her 25-plus years of experience in generating large-scale, high-impact innovations into an amazingly useful, engaging, and inspiring book to help us all work through that uncertainty. That new book is called Imagine It Forward, Courage, Creativity, and the Power of Change. And I couldn't be more thrilled to have its author Beth Comstock in the studio with me today. Beth, welcome to Women at Work. Thanks, Laura. Great to be here. Really excited for the conversation. Thanks. Me too. So in writing this book, you shared a whole bunch of different kinds of stories, not just GEs and NBCs and the story of the innovations themselves, but I felt like you shared your own story as you went through this very candidly. What inspired you to write this book this way? Yeah, well, I, um,
1: I, I felt I wanted to, originally I felt I wanted to write a book about the, the sort of change maker, the person who does innovation in a company, our journey. Uh, it's unusual. I, I wasn't really even sure how to say why we do it. Um, and I realized in the course of putting it together um, that I had to share my journey. Um, And it became very, very uh, a challenge really to myself to how how open can I be in this? How can I open myself up to tell stories that are painful, funny, challenging, just as candid as I can be? And so I took a risk in writing a different kind of business book. I mean, it is a personal narrative. I also put in practical tips and applications and challenges, but it is a different kind of business book. And it started from that need in myself to feel like I had to open up.
0: Well, I, I just have to tell you before we go into the meat of it, I was riveted. It spoke to me. It helped me make sense out of um, experiences I've had good ones, bad ones, things that in a way I didn't fully process until I read the book and I couldn't put it down. Well, that's good to hear. I'm
1: glad to hear that. And it's interesting you say the fully process. I feel like, um, I don't know if everybody has a book in them, but um, certainly I needed to process a lot of that after a 25 plus year career to make sense of it all. Um, That was also very uh, therapeutic for me to make sense of it. Some things I didn't realize until the course of writing it. For example, I really liked the struggle. Like, I, you know, I kept like, why do I keep signing up for this? And I remember going through and my editor was like, but every chapter is going to sound the same. Like you go in, you try, you get turned down, you try again, like this is going to be boring. And uh, I realized that, at, that I was in a bit of that rep- repetition, if you will, but um, that was
0: part of the story. And I felt I needed to share that struggle. And it wasn't boring at all. I think it did two different things. One, it showed us that that process of change and growth um, is an on, um, it's, it's a repetition. Yeah. It comes in rondo form, yeah. but also there's an arc to the excitement of it, and I think that's part of the headset of being an innovator. Yeah,
1: yeah, it is. There's a there's a weird um, resilience that you that you carry forward, um, and and perhaps I think maybe I, I you know I maybe didn't know when to quit. <laughs> I'm not sure that's always a good thing, um, but there is this energy you have to pull, and I mm-hmm. think I didn't realize that you know just somehow this, but there's this optimism of you believe in a better way. And it's just that that was really, you know, is it over optimism? Is it magical thinking? Maybe a little bit of that too. But I do think I'm not going to apologize for being optimistic. And um, the struggle is because you
0: see something better. Absolutely. Part of that, though, is that you have faith in your idea. You're excited by your idea. But there's also this way that if we don't have faith in ourselves, Or the lack of faith we have in ourselves sometimes can rub up against our faith in the idea and get in the way. How did you learn to have the personal confidence that would let you make a safe place to carry the idea forward against some intense opposition at times? Yeah, I
1: mean, again, the repetition story is there's always opposition, and somehow I'm always there. Um, But it's interesting you ask that way because— I, I And what I tried to document, too, was I shared I wasn't always so confident and how to overcome that. Um, I am shy. And to think you're in there, like, saying no, but I want to come back again and again. And it was often – it was – Sometimes the confidence in the idea, but it was often just the belief in, you know, getting out in the world, seeing these patterns, seeing the future. Now, you can't tell the future, but you can see kind of direction where you think things might be going. Mm -hmm. So that curiosity became a bit of a a way to overcome the lack of confidence, the fear of not knowing. It was less about—it gave me a confidence. It was less about my idea and
0: more of like, no, those patterns are there. Like, don't you see it? It's there. It's funny. Just last night I was listening to Elizabeth Gilbert's TED Talk interview. Mm-hmm. Which is so great. It's great. And she was talking about that magic of creativity and that it's not like the gods have delivered something upon us, but are you smelling an idea yeah. in the air? And it's curiosity that propels us to go and learn more, see more, exactly. get a grip on it. Yeah. And it takes a while to figure out what we do with it. Exactly. And I, I think she's been a great one to tell those stories, but it is almost like like
1: there's this other voice that's almost like it's outside of you, mm-hmm. but you can hear it. It's your. It's it's speaking to you in the same yeah. frequency, and it, it, it's hard. I think everybody has the capacity to hear that, but not everybody chooses to.
0: Now, and not everybody's accustomed to understanding that that's a real thing in a process. Yeah, I come from a world of artists where that's part and parcel of that experience of constantly being stimulated by things around you, and you're conversant and actually in a regular practice, a regular trying- practice to sort of channel that listening to that voice exactly, and to. Um, Apply it into whatever your craft huh, it's is. It's interesting
1: you say that because you know sometimes I think of famous artists. I've heard that they they say I don't know that line was always there. Is that what you mean,
0: kind of? Well, I think about in kind of the day to day practice of working artists. Yeah. Um, there's a habit that I think everyone, that most working artists have, of they're observing. Let's say it's a visual artist. You're sketching things. You're going to the museum. Mm-hmm. You're looking at things in magazines. You're paying attention yeah. to what's around you. You're taking pictures. And it doesn't all have to matter. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't all have to lead to a direct thing, but it all nourishes you in some way. I can definitely relate to that. And it starts to synthesize somehow. And then through the practice of doing your regular work, you start to create channels to develop those ideas, to see which ones stick. And it sounds like your approach to innovation was actually
1: very similar. I like. I mean, I never thought of myself as an (laughs) artist that way, but I'm going to take that. I I really like that. I also, you remind me of uh, one of my favorite books is Twyla Tharp's Creative Habit. Oh my God, yes. And that's some of what you're talking about was it really, really opened my eyes because it was like, no, she actually has a practice. Yes. For creativity, and that's why she called it the creative habit, and that's what you're saying, this idea of a practice, and that's some of what informed me on the book. I wanted to talk about kind of the practice of giving yourself challenges and the practice of sort of pushing yourself into these spaces that are different, but I hadn't thought about it from an artist's perspective.
0: Right, because think about it, your repetition story, she goes into the studio every day, works on choreography, tries to make
1: something new happen. I remember, to me, one of her stories was when she had that shoebox, Mm -hmm. and, you know, she was literally innovating inside the box, because she was talking about she'd get an idea, she'd write it on her card, and then she'd file it in her box. And I I thought, like, but you're Twyla Tharp, what do you need a box for? But it was this way to make sense of of that chaos, I think, right? Absolutely,
0: and to welcome, not to deny the chaos, Mm. but But to recognize that it comes in in one form and you have to make sense of it Mm. in another form. Yeah, I like
1: the way you. And then put it to
0: use. I want to back up for a minute because in talking about the way that you build confidence, you wrote there was a term in the book that I loved where you talked about developing social courage. Mm. Tell us what that was and how you realized you needed it and how you built it.
1: Yeah, I I love that phrase too. I um I think for me as being. Curious, but reserved, quiet, uh, more by nature. Um, It was hard for me to often put an idea out there, to speak up in a meeting, to meet new people. I mean, as curious as I was to go out and like show up in an event here and come up and say, hi, Laura, I'm Beth. Like that would have been unthinkable unthinkable to me, especially early in my career. And so I realized I had to give myself a series of small challenges, and really I had this notion of permission, which I think is a big part of what I'm trying to do with the book, to say, sometimes you have to give yourself permission to get out of your own way and get over those things that hold you back. And so to me, I was on a journey of social courage, of putting myself out there, opening myself up to what's new, what's next, to new connections as someone who, by nature, is a bit more reserved and closed. Yet I'm always curious, so that
0: was a bit of a conflict. Yeah, there's a little important tension there, though. You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Sarrow, and my guest this hour is Beth Comstock, former vice chair at General Electric and the author of a new book called Imagine It Forward, Courage, Creativity, and the Power of Change. I'm going to talk about a different concept of courage. Um, and it's, the, um, it's facing the blank page, facing yeah. the unknown um, solution. And as much as you have this practice, like many artists, of gathering information and figuring out how to generate ideas, um, how did you start to cope with that empty space and help others cope with it?
1: Yeah, I, um, I, I think it's that you're just staring into that void. And um, you, you get to the point where you're like, well, I can just sit here and stare at it or I can just do something. (laughs) So it's just, I think for me, this idea of innovation has always been not only just imagine a new way, but you have to act on it. To start somewhere. And so it's just start. It is just that simple of, okay. And I think what for myself, and I see this a lot of people who work in organizations, is we we have a lot of fears and we don't talk about it. And that was one of the things I wanted to sort of break open. But we fear, especially the white space, you have this idea in your head And then you put it on paper or whatever, and it's never as good as it was in your head. So you're immediately (laughs) discouraged, right? Right. Immediately you failed because it was brilliant up here on the top of your head, and there it's like a dud. And so I think it's that fear of just it's never going to be as good as we imagined it to be. That was one I can relate to. And to get over that, it was just just start. Right. Just, Just do it. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just start um and then see what goes from there i love whiteboards as a way of working i mean every place i've ever worked i have huge whiteboards oh yeah
0: they replace the wallpaper they, in my they, office it, no
1: and i i think it's because that is that you you get over that after a while and, yeah, then and you it's just not permanent. To, exactly you need to just record it it's just a matter of getting
0: something down fast so if you can get that as a practice of just mm-hmm. start then you can't stop Right. And in fact, it was a drawing teacher who said to me, just put a mark on the paper. It doesn't matter what the first mark is. It's a point of departure. You'll draw over it. You'll erase it. You'll change it. Just start. But yet up here, you're like, oh, my gosh, but that first mark has to be like Michelangelo just did that. Right. So now let's take that to how we work with other people. Um, As somebody who came from a design background and has worked at kind of internal innovation, I'm comfortable with the unknown. And I can have ideas in my head that are – and it's kind of ambiguous to other people, but it doesn't scare yeah. me. But I've learned over time that, A, other people can't see what's inside your head and that that can be a frightening place for people, partly because of failure, but also because they don't know – That their strong suit is not in navigating the morass. Yeah, yeah. How do you help people put aside their fear and join you? And how do you build that kind of trust with people? Yeah, well, I mean, you
1: do just say, just start. I think... um I think that um, that ability to um, get people to go with you often just to say let's go discover this together or ask questions. What do you, you know? I, I often um, I think in business context, people feel like they have to know the answer, and uh, I like to just say, "What's your hypothesis?" It's right. just a simple, just like what's the answer wrong question in a situation like that. What's your hypothesis? You're not committing to know the answer. You're just saying, "Here's what I think may be happening." Now I'm going to go figure it out. I like reframing things often in those situations. I also like saying, here's a seed of an idea. I don't know where it goes. I don't know what the answer is. Let's go figure it out. Or you go figure it out. Tell me what you think. So you're just saying it's a spark to get you started, Mm -hmm. but you're not trying to do the whole outline. I found those are helpful to in, in, in ambiguity. And then to say to yourself, it's okay, I don't know. I'm in discovery mode. I'm just going to like sit with this for a while. And you have to be comfortable that you actually have to be able to walk away. There comes a point when you've picked at it enough where you have to say, okay, like I can't do anymore. I'm going to walk away.
0: Right. That ability to know now's not the time, come back later, yeah. is often critical to being creative without letting the judgment get in the way of what you're making. Yeah, and
1: I think it's it's especially instru- instructive in business because everybody has a deadline, we're in this meeting for an hour, the, the, you know, the horror uh, that comes into a meeting, okay, we have an hour, let's be creative. And we have to come out with something at the end. <laughs>
0: right, and actually we need to save five minutes so we can go over notes and assign <laughs> exactly, tasks. <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly, and it's impossible and then, you know, but yet you know that sometimes you get together and these creative moments happen, usually when it's large unstructured Mm -hmm. when somebody says something and you sit with it for a minute the ambiguity of what they've said did you mean this well i interpreted it that and then you kind of create this this rift so i often find having other people around as you're circling around ambiguity is very helpful to define and give clarity that maybe you can't see on your own
0: there's a lot of discussion. We do it a lot here on the show. It's in business at large about the value of having diverse voices in the room and making a safe place for those voices yeah. to be heard. Um, how diverse was the environment at GE when you walked in and how did it change over the time that you were there? Well, it wasn't very diverse from a gender and from a skill set perspective.
1: I walked in, I left NBC, which was owned by GE, came to GE. Um, it was highly um, just business management. A lot of engineers, whether they were technical engineers or financial engineers, those were the people I came to work with. Um, There weren't a lot of women. In fact, I I share a story of one of my first uh, business leadership meetings. The women's room had been taken over. There were so many men that they took over the ladies' room, and they made the women, the few of us there, go to the bathroom, like down the hall behind the kitchen, and the men got to take over the ladies' room and the men's room. There were so many men. And so I marked progress during the course of my GE career by, when we took back our bathroom. (laughs) Yay! We're we're liberated. We got back our bathroom. And then you'd measure it by the, the line outside the men's room and the women's room. So I joke, but I mean that was a sign of progress. Uh, and I think for GE, the more we opened up globally, mm-hmm. um, we went in pursuit of growth to new markets, new places. That means you have to you have to go and open your aperture. You're going to new markets. You have to hire people with different perspectives. I was brought in, and the job I took over was marketing. It was a new definition of marketing. It was live in the market see where change is showing up. I brought in and helped usher in market back thinking. That was very different from an engineer who's solving a problem, a very important problem, but maybe not in touch with what's happening in the market. Right,
0: and it's one of the amazing things that you did was that you converted marketing from being how do I convince the external world that this has value, but instead to learn from the external world so we can create something of yeah. value. Yeah,
1: I love the way you put that. Yeah, it's exact, to move it really to the beginning of the process, to say this is kind of the GPS of the organization, where's the world going? But through that, we had to bring in different minds. Uh, I did a lot of recruiting here at Wharton. We hired like <laughs> 150 MBAs every year, and we were bringing in people with different toolkits, different skill sets. And along with that came more women, more people of color, more just diverse thinkers. I mean, you know, marketing was a huge frontier in in many ways, just to say we're going to bring in different. So I, I saw that change dramatically, um, but honestly, not enough. And I think for all
0: the companies like GE do with the best intentions, it's really hard. You just described something that's really powerful because it's the Um, It's the inverse of how so many organizations think of it. You didn't start by saying, let's get more people of color, let's get more gender diversity um, so that we can get more cognitive diversity. You actually hired, it sounds like, for cognitive diversity, and with it came the demographic diversity. I I, I mean,
1: I think that's as much aspiration, but I do know I I, I saw that happen, especially as we went global. You're hiring for a different kind of, of experience. You're hiring for experience of growing a market in China. You're Chinese. How, by default, you have a different way of, of looking at things. And so it is a cognitive diversity. And before you know it, you've got a lot of gender diversity because of that.
0: Because you've hired with yeah. that as your organizing principal. Yeah, exactly. I want to back up a little bit. You told a story early on in your career where you were, you, you could see the path to promotion. You were in line for a kind of significant next step that seemed pretty deserved um, to the SVP for Corporate Communications at NBC. And you weren't being offered it. Can you talk a little bit about how that felt and what you did about it and what you learned in the process? Yeah, well, um, first of all, let me set the stage by saying
1: the job had been, there was a job that had been open for six months, and I thought it had my name on it. And so I sat by my phone every day waiting for them to call me and say, Good news, you've got the job. Six months later, they hadn't called me. And by then, I was furious like, I can't believe I'm not considered. It was one of those sort of classic career mistakes where you wait for them to call you. So I finally got up my nerve. I I tiptoed into the head of HR's office and just said, hey, I want to be considered. And he said, oh, yeah, we did consider you, but you're a young mother. The job requires a lot of travel. And so we thought it wasn't right for you. And I just I learned so much in that moment. One, I was so (laughs) furious at this guy. I was furious at him because because he had made assumptions about me that weren't true. I could travel. And it was really my business if I could travel. And I was incredibly furious at myself because I had one let that opportunity fester i didn't seek it i didn't promote myself yeah, you, for if it you like waited
0: for six months right i mean that if you Did want you feel something... like it wasn't appropriate to go reach for it or was it the culture there that they came to you
1: no it wasn't the culture i think it was more about me i think it was more about me and it was one of those earlier learnings in my career of if they want you they'll ask for you And again, back to being somewhat shy and hesitant to put myself out there, it just was a bridge too far. Um, And I just guess I thought they would call me if they wanted me, you know, just like if they want me, they'll call me. Um, And so that was a huge learning for me. And I hoped I was able to carry that through as I was then later able to work with teams of people and, you know, be a manager is that don't assume don't assume, even if somebody says to you, I can't take that job because I got a kid in high school or whatever, don't assume a year from now that's still the situation. Ask. Absolutely. And your job is to make sure the people who you work for know what's important to you, know what your restrictions
0: are, know the change, and if you don't tell them, how are they going to know? Exactly. And um, something, uh, language that we now have for it is that it's actually a form of benevolent sexism, that the people who are making the choice not to ask may think, Right, exactly. That they're operating in your best interest, but they're actually denying you agency. Right.
1: And, and it was interesting. That what I say in the book is that the head of HR became somewhat of a mentor to me. Um, and I was really grateful for that. And I think, I haven't asked him, but I hope I became somewhat of a mentor to him from that perspective to be able to say, see... We young moms can do it, see?
0: Absolutely. Um, And
1: in fact, he became a bit of a champion for me. And by the time my next big job was to go to GE and work for Jack Welch, and I know he had talked me up in that role. So he and I would have missed that
0: opportunity if we both hadn't kind of learned from that. And if you hadn't stepped forward. You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I am your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest this hour is Beth Comstock. You may know her as the former vice chair at General Electric, and she's now the author of this amazing new book called Imagine It Forward, Courage, Creativity, and the Power of Change. I want another ask another question about these kinds of like gender dynamics that yeah. sometimes we, we understand and we don't. You told a story in the book, and it was a very subtle little thing that you dropped about a golf outing but you didn't play golf. And, you know, because I'm looking at everything through this Women at Work lens, yeah. I was like, of course, that's how things always happen. <laughs> Did it feel like that to you then? Yeah, I this... love that you picked that out.
1: I, I And it, it actually was a more important thing than I portrayed it in the book, in the sense of two things were going on. Um, I just, everybody in that culture played golf, and they wore golf vests, and, and they just, like, golf was the culture. Right. And
0: you are in Westchester County, right? I, and, it's very golfy. And, and I don't
1: like golf. And I did a few times try to play, and I even tried to take lessons at, you know, because I And did outings. you do
0: it because you thought it was important yes, for work? Yes, I
1: did it because I thought that I had to show up and they had to see I was participating. But then I had this epiphany like, I don't like it, and I don't want to spend my time this way. Also, at the same time, I think what I try to document and I've come to appreciate is there was this rebellion piece of me, this little rebel that was starting to emerge from this very quiet, good girl, this rebel. And it was like, why do I have to pay, play golf to do well here? I'm not a golfer. I'm not gonna, I don't choose to spend my time that way. So that became a little bit for me of kind of that's my frontier. I mean, I guess if they had said, you're not gonna get promoted unless you play golf, I would have figured out a way to play golf.
0: But it was a way to assert my identity a little bit and to say, I'm not gonna, I'm not a golfer. I love that you did that because what we hear from so many other women is the same frustration. I don't like golf, I'm not good at it, that's not how I wanna spend time. Or I can't devote a Saturday to playing yeah. golf because it's family or- time. Um, and to feel um, excluded. Yes. But instead, you took it and owned it and said, I don't need this. I'm going to find other ways to build connections. Exactly.
1: And also, I just wasn't very good at it. And what I learned by doing that is, especially for company outings where you have these you know, team events, um, there were a lot of men who didn't play golf either. Either they hadn't said that and they were miserable <laughs> or they were also little rebels, and we found these fun. I found these fun little communities of people who were off doing other interesting. Things. So you were able to connect with other people, exactly. and you weren't
0: just having lunch with the other women. Right, on the team. we were
1: like golf refugees or something, uh, little golf <laughs> re- rebels or something. We were creating our own united front of non-golfers, and I, I wouldn't have known that. And I think in some ways, just by declaring, you know, I don't like golf, someone could say, you know what, I don't either. And in some ways, in that situation, it was perhaps even harder for the men, to say,
0: you know what. I don't like golf either. Right, because we both know that there are plenty of good women golfers. Yeah. It's not that. But it also raises for me whether there were two lenses that anyone was looking at through looking through at the time, including you, yeah. of recognizing that it's gendered. But it's also there's a socioeconomic issue yeah. there. Yeah. That, I mean, by the time people are at this level at GE, they're educated, they're professionally successful, but it doesn't mean that they had access yeah, to that point. kind of sport opportunity. Yeah,
1: great point. Great point. And I, I didn't grow up in a family. My dad didn't golf. Off. I mean, I, it just wasn't our, our family. And, you know, anyway, it is it is interesting. But that is sort of the, the theater we have at, at work often. Right. That these things are important. Clearly bonding happens. And for some women, it's important. I'm going to break in there. I'm going to figure it out. I just found it was a different way to assert
0: myself, and I'm not. Sh- I don't think I missed out, to be honest. It doesn't sound like you did, and I love that you reframe it as theater. I've never heard it um, phrased that way before. Well, and- I thought I've thought a lot
1: about theater in the course. I talk a little bit in the book about what we called success theater. Yes. showing up, trying to pretend like they're successful. I think there's also innovation theater in the sense that people are all dressed up, pretending like they're innovating, but they don't really want to do the hard work. Right. And so I do think a lot of, we need to be honest, is a lot of work is kind of theater. And some of that's probably okay, but some of it, like,
0: let's just be honest what it is. Right. And it's funny that you talked before about a part of theater of, I'm going to go be brave. Yeah. I'm going to have the courage to go out there and be social. That's probably a useful kind yeah, of theater. Yeah, it is. It is. And there there was a time um,
1: when I um, I thought I was acting, and I really wasn't, when I was thought I was putting on my confidence face. And Jeff Immelt, who was my boss, called me into his office and said, hey, listen, I need you to be confident. And it was coming. He could f- tell he you He could weren't. tell that I was. And he said, I put you, I had just been named CMO. He said, I put you in this job for a reason, and you're not showing up enough. Like come on, I see you in one situation and I see you in these bigger meetings and you're not there. And to that point, I thought I had been acting. I thought I was like Meryl Streep. You know, I thought like (laughs) I was, but I wasn't. So he was able to detect that in me. So I think also maybe you think you're
0: acting and you're really not And that was a lesson to me. Like, I had to own it. I had to change my behavior. And it's also a nod to authenticity that we'll talk about shortly after we take a short break, um, because we do need to do that. And where I'm going to continue my discussion with Beth Comstock in just a few minutes. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. We'll be back shortly, but in the meantime, it's Beth Comstock, author of Imagine It Forward Courage, Creativity, and the Power of Change. And I got to tell you, I couldn't have Loved it more. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Flora Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. And my guest today is the amazing Beth Comstock, former Vice Chair of General Electric and author of the really amazing book, Imagine It Forward Courage, Creativity, and the Power of Change. Beth, welcome back to Women at Work. Thanks, Laura. It's so great being here. Before the break, we were talking about kind of authenticity and confidence. And when you realize that when you weren't confident, it was showing and the need to be real about those things. And while the CEO, Jeff at the time, was telling you, you've got to find that confident face. There was something else you did in your work there that I think was almost probably more impactful, which was actually you made a safe place to fail. Yeah. Talk to me about how you wrapped your head around, Um, A, coping with your own mistakes in front of other people and then why failure was so important to success.
1: Yeah, well, I um I I mean I I've just my I guess my career tells me that without failing you can't succeed. That was a tough lesson learned in my in my career. And and um, I think for me, it just became this way of really taking any sort of money, time, budget I had and creating kind of an experimental lane in the teams I worked with. Over time, we were able to craft it into our business innovation unit. We created a sort of innovation and venture team where we, we actually had real professionals who could do that. But in the early days, it was always just, let's create a space to experiment. 10 to 15% of the budget, um, let's just try things. If, for example, when we were in marketing on the, on the brand marketing side, rather than just doing everything the traditional way, let's exper- experiment with digital media. Let's just test it and learn it. When I was at NBC, we had a digital uh, content studio. It was a way, I, I feel like it's just a way to get to learn. Mm-hmm. I, I've always seen those as kind of going to school on the subject. But you can um, you can create the space, you can create the safety. Like I had to say to people, it's okay. And I had to carve off money. It wasn't like I could go ask for additional money. Right. I had to find the means to make that happen. And it just became the way I
0: worked. It's How did you deal with it personally? Because if I'm um, connecting the dots yeah. and then thinking about the story of how you not only unfolded it, but I'm going to say matured. Yeah, definitely. That as a young woman, um, a little shy, you needed to find the courage inside to go be social and interact. Yeah. Um to fail in front of colleagues, particularly colleagues with whom you have a tense relationship, um, that in some ways is even harder than having a project that doesn't yeah, succeed because yeah. it feels so personal. And I know you had some of those experiences. How did you cope with them?
1: Yeah, well, I um, and I, I share this, I mean, to me, I had a very big personal failure in the fact that... Uh, as my career was just taking off, I uh, was divorced. I got divorced. I was a young mother, um, and I just sort of had this moment, like, the future I want is not the life I'm living. My, the story that's that I signed up for is not the one I want. And so I had to admit huge failure at that point. This is not where I want to be. This is not a marriage. This marriage isn't going to work. So I got divorced, chose a path going forward. My young daughter, myself, kind of taking a big risk and moving from Washington to New York that was sort of a very early failure for me that i it had to i had to change my whole story i had to change right. my whole frame of reference and so in many ways that shadowed and and invigorated i think my career in many ways cuz i always thought i've done this right i faced into that i faced into that yes. fear and what, you know, people were saying, what, what the pe- perception would have been. And if I could do that, I can do these other things. They, they pale in comparison to that. And I shared that story, which is not very often you have someone talk about that in a business book. But I often go back to that moment or moments like that when it's like, when did I fail? How did I get through it? And what did I learn? When you're going through tough times, remember, you've been here before. Right. you have done that. And so it was often instructive. At, at that time, I had no choice but to move forward. No choice. I had to make it work. So then as you move forward in your career, you look, you sort of like, I've been here before doesn't mean you're not afraid, it doesn't mean you're not nervous, you you don't want to take a risk, but it gives you just a little bit of additional, like, knowledge of yourself Mm -hmm. that says, I know I can do this.
0: Yeah, it was, you told the story early in the book, and it really hit me where I live because I have the same story. Do you? Yeah. And um, so often when people talk about divorce, it's the heartbreak of it, it's the failure of it, it focuses on the impact of the family. But we don't learn and see these role models of other people around us who say, you know what, my life isn't what I want it to be at the deepest, most important levels, yeah. and I can change it, and I did change it, and we came out on the other side, not just intact, but maybe even better.
1: Yeah, and you ha- it's scary. You have to face into the moment. I mean, I remember I shared in the book, I was sitting there my my like, sweaty ear against this cold door <laughs> as my then-husband told my mother. I was even too afraid to tell my mother. You know, just like the, the fear of that. But I knew I had to do it. It's that this that moment of reckoning. And then you translate it into work. And I'll often say to people like the fears you have, like they're not nearly as big. I mean as as you think they are. Are you really going to lose your job, really? Right. I mean, there's some there are moments you take where that, that does are stupid happen. and you might lose your job. But most people, your fears are are not in relation to 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 the reality Absolutely. of the situation. But if you've been in those moments, you know you can get through it. And I remember at that moment thinking, I can't be this. In fact, that's what, you know, I can't be this. And I I had to be something else. And right. so
0: I had to go forward. You had that's was about being authentic and yeah. true to yourself. Cuz otherwise if that's the centerpiece of the rest of the system, the family system isn't going to work if you're not being real. Yeah.
1: And and so I could face that because it was the sort of my truth, my authentic moment if you will, and I had to own it. And I had to own the repercussions of it. I had to own the impact of those sort of things. I, I couldn't. I signed up for it, right?
0: I owned it. And while it wasn't by design. It did give you some real experience in how to give people news they didn't want to hear yeah, and exactly. how to pick up the pieces and rebuild afterwards. Yeah,
1: exactly. And you just figure it out. There's no beautiful plan. There's no strategic plan in life that says, this: I'm going to do these five things and I'm going to get this ROI. And I, I again, I like that as a metaphor <laughs> because it's business doesn't really work that way either.
0: No, it doesn't. It would be tidy if it did, but yeah. it doesn't quite work that way. This is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I am talking with Beth Comstock, former vice chair of GE, and all... of imagine it forward courage creativity and the power of change It seemed like another place where you had to summon a certain amount of courage was to deal in particular with partners colleagues at work and you tell stories about Jeff Zucker um, where that was a a fraught relationship and I was reading it with tremendous attention because I've had relationships like that myself and years later, I, I still think about them in the middle of the night or when I'm swimming. And what could I learn from them? How could it have done, gone differently? Yeah. Was it my fault? Was it Is their swimming fault? swimming your moment where you... Yes. <laughs> yes. All things make either... Whatever's bothering me merges when out, I swim. I like that. Or I relax about mm-hmm. it. Um, so what would you do differently? Could you tell us a little bit about the arc of that relationship yeah. for the people who haven't read the book yet, and what you would do differently if you were approaching it now?
1: Yeah, well, just to give you some context. So I had been at GE. They shipped me back to NBC. Uh, I was leading digital media. It was digital disruption. The world was being disrupted at the time by video coming online and Think YouTube at the time. Yep. And so... And what year was this? That would have been uh, 2006. Okay. And so there was a lot of fear in the air. Um, Jeff Zucker and I had been colleagues before. We had worked together at NBC News. I considered us friends. He had elevated, and he was in line to get the top job. Bob Wright was going to potentially, at some point, retire. They brought me back in, and I looked, by all appearances, as a corporate spy. I had been at (laughs) GE. I come back in. I'm I'm asked to lead digital disruption. There were a lot of reasons people were suspicious of me, and and it just it just escalated over time. And I think um, I. I um, was part of the Cool Kid Brigade, and I regret that in some respects. Like, we were the digital Turks. We were going to come in, and we were going to make media change. And we were messing a lot of things up and calling things into question. And, and it just I got on the wrong side of Jeff Zucker. He ended up getting promoted to the head of the network, head of the business. And um, at, before that happened, there was a lot of tension. People were like, Beth's going to take your job. She's up, She's in the running for the top job. Media was reporting it. So I could understand why he felt somewhat competitive with me, if not threatened, because everybody was saying I was out for the same job he wanted. And I was going into him saying, like, I want to change. we got to do this. I need your support. And we just came to, you know, we had it out on several occasions. And what I could have done differently, um, and I try to document it in the book, is just— I should have taken it less personally. But it's hard when it so much of it was personal. I mean, to give you a sense, there were just, media was very different than the traditional GE. It was my team against your team. And I would wake up in the morning and pick up the New York Post, which has a gossip, famous gossip column yeah, page called six. Page Six, and there'd be a gossip item about me. Somebody would, had written, she's, you know, she's so smooth, she'll take out your kidney and you don't even know oh my it's, God, that's awful. it's missing because they were trying to mess with my mind and say she's not long for this world. And it got that. And so we were all in this weird space where everybody that was gossiping. make people crazy. It, and made me crazy and it made him crazy because equal things were being said about, said about him. So I think we were not both in our best minds and we exacerbated the feud if you will and our teams exacerbated it
0: how and much of that was conscious how much of it was unconscious
1: i think a lot of it was conscious to be <laughs> okay. honest if
0: i if i'm really i felt mean, like you were kind of like at war
1: at war and i think this happens in companies often when you're in the stress of big change is you fight against each other you're not you're not trying to build the future and i fell for it I got right in there. I took it personally. I duked it out. And that's what I would have done differently. I, you know, I had a, a advisor who said, just take him out for coffee. I'm like, are you taking him out for coffee? And, not, you know, but again, he's a person. I had a lot to respect about him. I had once been friendly with him. Right, but the him. idea
0: of going to coffee with that person, I had of that person. Yeah. The idea of going to coffee, it like made me queasy. I know, I know. But I think there were ways to
1: have diffused the stress and say, look. We both have a similar goal. We want this place to succeed. Let's talk about this. What you know, here's what I'm thinking. What do you know, I just have, frankly been a little bit more of an adult about it, a little bit more mature about <laughs> and maybe it, maybe brought and, a little empathy and, and some em- humor, empathy and humor. I mean, to make fun of it. Like, let's have let's laugh about this. Isn't this funny? Like, right. Could how you put in is. like a note
0: to page six? It, like, it, look, the enemies were having lunch together. Yeah,
1: exactly. So I didn't do any of that. I just took it way too. I lost perspective. I think that's would be my headline. And that's why I shared that the, that period, because I lost perspective Things could have gone a lot easier. I mean, it worked out fine. We seeded some good stuff. But it was interesting. As I was putting the book together, I went back to Jeff Immelt, and I said, did you ever think of firing me? I don't know why I asked him that. And he said, well, there was that one time at NBC, you came close to me thinking I might have to fire you because you lost perspective.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Because it wasn't wasn't about the small things that were happening yeah. it's about where your head was at exactly
1: and i fell for it i took it very personally and so i i would have sort of and i try to document and share some things you know what it could have should have kind of things mm-hmm. in the book but i do think you know get out of that trench warfare when your colleagues pick your head up try to make fun of it try to use empathy and get to know the know the person that's
0: what you got to do talk to me about this idea of what we take personally and what we don't I struggle with it all the time, partly because my orientation is that of an artist. we It's part of your identity. It's what you make. It's Your work is connected to who you are yeah. and the ideas and things that excite you. You take pride in what you do. You get joy from it. But where's that line? How, where do you find How do you build and sustain um, a boundary so that you can protect yourself at times that are hard like that yeah. or challenge yourself when you need to? And I think I'm not—I've
1: struggled with that, to be honest. I think for too long I took things too personally. Um, And it was honestly that experience at NBC that made me realize, okay, now I know personal— And all these things I've been taking personally, you know, they actually weren't that personal. (laughs) And it was what you said. It's mistaking the passion, your personal passion for something, Mm -hmm. for an attack on you because you become that idea. You become that movement. You become that future. And you have to say a little bit like, it's not my idea. It's not my future. I'm just kind of midwiving it. I'm getting it out there. So you do need that perspective. And that's what helped me. Honestly, just seeing personal attacks now made me differentiate it. I remember once... um, as I was sort of, we were kind of getting to the end of my GE career, um, there was a reporter who did a story on sort of the, the ascent of a lot of great women at GE and more leadership positions of, of women. And she talked to a lot of us. And Jeff Immelt was quoted, and he said, um, I, love the, I love having women in leadership positions. They're great. Women are particularly loyal. And I took that really personally. <laughs> And I think there was a bit of truth to it is why I took it personally. But um, I remember just feeling like well, I'm not loyal necessarily to you. I'm loyal to you, yes, but I'm loyal to the to, cause, to, yeah. to the company. To GE, Actually, to the work. It wasn't a personal loyalty, and maybe you mistake, you <laughs> mistook some of that loyalty a little bit, too. So I do think sometimes we, if we're so into our jobs, we're so into it, sometimes it's hard to Those things to get murky. It. Yeah.
0: And also that our excitement about what we're doing, um, one of the things I think we have to learn when we're creating is... To be excited about the thing we're aiming towards, not any individual moment that we've made or created, because that also makes it hard to discard the bad ideas and to iterate away from them and to remember that bad work does not make me a bad person. And a bad moment in the process does not make the work bad.
1: Yeah, but I mean, it's a journey to get there. And I think to what you're saying, you're looking at the vision, the outcome, Mm -hmm. right? That's what. So I might might try fifty things that don't work, but the vision still matters. That that potential path still has to happen. Mm -hmm. But now I got to keep working on what will work. I think that's the way to help reframe it
0: when um, one of the things that I loved about the layout of the book was um, there are these pages in it that just have a particular quote and one was from the Dalai Lama about um, your enemies are our enemies are our best teachers talk to me about what made you realize that
1: well I um, worked with a colleague um, who just drove me crazy um, just drove me <laughs> mad um, he talked over people especially me he was very arrogant I didn't think he worked that hard but he kept getting promoted and and I used to get so angry like I would just And I took it personally because I was like, I'm working so hard and how is he getting ahead? And I just finally like, this is not getting me anywhere. I'm like making myself miserable. What can I learn from him? How can I go to school on this guy? Um, And and I did. I just changed my mindset just of like, okay, he's working smart and I'm not. So what can I learn? Okay. He's able to go home at five o'clock and play tennis with his wife. I'm not doing that with my husband, not that I play tennis, but what is he doing? And so I just turned it in. And I, again, I got out of that, not made it so personal. I, I created some perspective for myself.
0: You kept learning through your whole career. It's one of the things that I think is truly inspiring and one of the ways that you're a great role model. One of the other small things that you dropped was there was a time where you had an executive coach. Yeah. Talk to me about when you knew it was that time. How did that happen? How would you pick somebody yeah, I've
1: always had coaches, advisors, um, really throughout my career. I remember when I was trying to be a TV reporter, I had a speech coach. So I've always, but I got a particularly painful evaluation um, r- 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 right in the middle of my career, and I got some news I didn't want to hear. Hey, you, you're, you, you hog ideas. You don't ask for help. Um, you come to us when everything's fully baked, and we want to help. And you, you know you're abrupt, and it was really hard for me to take. I thought I was doing so well, and that I, is hard I'm stuff to take. On that, and and I worked with a really great HR coach, and he he was in our company, and he gave me some good advice. He said you got to go back in there, you got to tell your team you heard it, you accepted it, and you need their help. And that was that moment of like, yeah, I need to ask for help. And then from there on, I think it just became easier to say, I do need help on this, and to just seek out people, whether the company paid for them, I paid for them, or they were just informal coaches or advisors.
0: That became kind of the way I worked. Kind of a recognition yeah. that you, you regularly need to plug in and keep learning.
1: I think you have to ask for help. Um, and that is part of the learning, and that was a very painful learning because you think, I'm supposed to know it. I'm a manager now. I lead this team. Yeah, I think it's scary for a
0: lot of us to say, I don't know. It's scary for people to say, I'm sorry, Yeah, and to say, I don't know, and I need help. But that's all part of what I think this new model of management, this
1: new adaptive, change-ready kind of mind is, I don't know the answer. You go figure it out, to bring your empathy, humility to work. These are all things that sound so soft, but it's how you got to figure They're stuff out. There really is no powerful. right now that tells us how to deal with this new world. And so it are it is those kind of mindset shifts that I think are critical. There is one book
0: that helps us deal with these things, and it's called <laughs> Imagine It Forward, <laughs> Courage, Creativity, and the Power of Change. And its author is Beth Comstock, the former vice chair of GE, and my guest today here on Women at Work. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. So Beth, part of this is about learning, about who we turn to to learn, who we trust to guide us. Talk to me about um, mentorship in particular. Um, did you did you look for mentors? You clearly had some mentors, because I see especially our students, younger people now, um, looking for mentors in a way that I never considered when I was starting and my do they, career. how do they do that? Well, they ask for them. I've had people come and say, would you mentor me? Um, I've had some people that I just wind up, and and that's a different relationship, and I'm happy to help people. But it's also, there's the difference of, will you X me? Will you mentor me? Will you coach me? Will you be a sponsor for me? And they can have different meanings to different people. And then there's the organic relationship that happens, where you just find somebody in your midst that you understand, they understand you, and there's a way that you help each other grow. What were your experiences with these kinds of relationships on the mentee side yeah
1: um i like the way you put that I, I share a similar definition you know sort of i call it a champion not a sponsor but you know kind of your agent they I like know your word. story they promote you a mentor is somebody who helps you get become a better version of you on your path of career and then a coach is somebody who i think helps you identify and work on particular needs you're trying to solve or get better about yourself um so i i like what you said though i think the the ones that are organic are the ones that I have valued the most. Where we've worked together, there's a, um, a bond, there's a trust. I know they've got my back. So mm-hmm. when I say, "What do you think about this? I think I need to fix this. What do you think?" Their answer is very genuine. Yeah, you're right. I'm glad you saw that. And
0: or, you can be vulnerable. You can be
1: vulnerable, and then you you you're they they're working. You're working for the same cause. So I think those have been the best ones. I've had mentors that are you know, 10 or 20 years older than me. And I've had mentors who are 10 years younger than me. One of my favorite, um, I'd call her a mentor, I and mean, she's now a friend, but she's somebody who's 10 years younger than me. And I was able to see from her, she kind of like helped me loosen myself up. She like Tells funny jokes, and she like says this isn't so hard. And she gives me feedback when I don't want to hear, so it, but I need to hear. You still have somebody it. mentoring. I you. do, and I thought, I I feel like it's oh to learn. You constantly have to seek feedback. That is one of my takeaways from a career from this new age of change we're in. Feedback, feedback, feedback. Um, and you, there are degrees of feedback,
0: right? The, the <laughs> and there are most... ways to
1: give feedback exactly constructively exactly. But the most honest feedback is a gift. And when people give that to you, and then you're accountable. In some ways, right? I've told mm-hmm. you this. You can choose to listen or not, but then I'm kind of you're on the hook with me a little
0: bit. So that's what I like about that is that you know I I I, ha- I can't ignore it. Right, and that this is something like if if you're mentoring me and you've talked to me about this, then it becomes a thing between us. Right, that we're we're accountable to each other. Exactly. For. Next time I you know hey Laura how's it going? You have to mention it.
1: Right. Or if not, we like did you did you not did we not have exactly. this conversation? Yeah. So I I'm I'm always asking for feedback, but I do have special relationships of people people um, who've, who've mentored and championed me, um, and I think it's really a special relationship.
0: So of all the things that you created in your career, you innovated um, business, energy, you know, lighting, television watching. Um, you took on something that for many people seems approachable, but maybe one of the most elusive things to create, and that's actually a book. Mm. How did you approach the white space of the book? How did you um, navigate that process? Because it really is, it's both producing a product and a deeply creative endeavor.
1: Yeah, it was, it was much harder than I thought. Let me just start off by saying that. I didn't really know what to expect. Um, but I had, as I said earlier, I had this vision. I wanted to chronicle the kind of innovator's journey, and I wanted to sh- sort of give some encouragement to people mid to early career. So I had that thesis and it took me almost four years to put the process together, about nine months to get the proposal done. I worked with a great agent who's a stickler for quality proposals. That was maybe the hardest because I had to hone my thesis. I had to give it structure in an outline form. Did that teach you a new way of framing an idea and developing yes, it? And and I'm good at iterating, but like she challenged me like crazy. And no, that doesn't make sense. And and I, I then I had to get a co-writer. I had a job at the time. And I'm glad I got a co-writer, but it's also hard because he's not in my head and I wasn't in his head. And I made the book very personal. Um, but what I like about co-writing, and I'd say it's a lesson I've learned from an innovation career, we kind of shared the risk and reward. He was good at some things, and I was good at some things. And as not having the confidence of having written a book before, he'd go, he had co-written many. Okay. So he had confidence that I didn't and knowledge, and he really whipped it into shape, and he really helped add structure in a way I could not have done. And he had some good turns of phrases that I, as good a writer as I think I am, they weren't his. Um, and then we had a great editor process and went through that, and a lot of time spent on promoting it, meaning... You have to have, like, what's your value proposition? You have to get out there. All the things I know how to do, I've spent my career. Right, as a marketer. It's really hard to do it for yourself. Isn't it? It is really hard. Especially something so personal. It is. It's like my baby. And that took me by surprise. I can, I'm sitting here holding a bottle cap right now. I could promote this bottle cap. (laughs) I I know I do a really good job. I I swear. But promoting myself is the hardest thing I've ever done because you don't have perspective. You're too close to it. You want to, you know, you've put so much into it. You You want want it to to be be loved. Exactly. And so that part has been perhaps the most difficult of all. And I didn't anticipate that.
0: Would you write a book
1: again? it's like having a kid maybe you know you forget about it but uh, I I would say what's helped me is now that I have it out in the world and talking about it but I also you have to go back to why did I what's your mission right what's the vision for it what's your strategy what need are you meeting exactly and so that's what helped in those moments like I cannot do this why did I do this and then I'd go back and go remember here's why you did it has that changed Reconnect with that. And so I think that was, also, that was really helpful. Coming out of it now, have, do you, have you read it cover to cover? Many times. I read it out loud for the audio version, okay. which I'd highly recommend as a hack. Uh, before you final <laughs> do the final edit, read your book out loud because you'll want to take a lot more out of it. It was too late at
0: that point, but that was a really great learning. It's funny. I do that whenever I'm do giving you? a talk or even when I'm getting ready for the show is I'll say things out loud. I think my office mates hear me babbling away, but you catch things that very differently than when you read yeah, them. I'm,
1: I'm glad you do that. Yeah, I've only recently learned that practice. It's but definitely... it's different
0: when I'm doing it for a 20-minute talk versus a 400-page book. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, and it was. I, I'm a value author. I gave you a lot of pages for your book. So I also, you know, there were probably things I could have taken out, might have done differently as I look back on it, but it's gone. That's the thing about a book, it's done. You know, you don't get a do over,
0: you don't get a do over, but you do get to keep um, witnessing the yeah. impact it's having on the rest of us. And Beth, I found it to be an enormous gift. No, thanks, Laura, I really appreciate it. That means a lot coming from you, thank you. You gave language to things that um, I've struggled to express to other people. You helped me understand different times in my life and I think gave us a really useful tool, especially as I think about the young people I work with, to help them be more innovative in their work.
1: Well, that's great to hear. And I do think language is important in innovation and change. I mean, look at the world we're in right now and the, the crazy change. We've we've some way we're, we're turning each other off by language when really we need to be connecting and I often would in the middle of heated debates and change sometimes you have to stop and go wait a minute. What do you mean by that word. Mm-hmm. Remember in the digital days, platform. What do you mean? I mean this. You know, you it's just, what's our shared vocabulary. It, it is. And often we forget that language and story and some of these things are really the essence of what we're
0: trying to do in making change. If people want to find the book or learn more about you and the things you're up to, how can they find you? I'm
1: on all the social platforms. Probably the best platform to connect would be LinkedIn.
0: Fantastic. Beth, I can't thank you enough for Thanks taking so time. Thanks to for the talk opportunity. Great snake.
1: conversation. I really, really loved
0: it, it too.